Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy. Sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker. And folks, on today's show, we have our interview with Colin Grabo. Hey, Ron, how's it going? Great, Ed. I always love it when we have Cato people on. They're some of the smartest folks. And uh, I really have been marinating in Colin's work all morning. So I'm really looking forward to this. Yes, it's going to be great. Can't wait to talk to him about it. Let's read him in and get started on this. Uh, Colin Grabo is a research fellow at the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies, where his research focuses on domestic forms of trade protectionism, as well as the Jones Act and other U.S. sugar programs. Uh, His writings have been published in a number of outlets, including USA Today, The Hill, National Review, and The Wall Street Journal. Colin holds a BA in International Affairs from James Madison University and an MA in International Trade and Investment Policy from George Washington University. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Colin Grabo. Gentlemen, thanks for having me on. Well, we are excited to talk to you about this. Ron and I have had uh, been threatening to do a show about the Jones Act for quite some time. And then uh, I heard, I think it was in October, you had published an article and then did an interview on uh, the Cato Daily podcast about it. And I said, let's see if we can have somebody on to discuss this who's far more astute with this than I. So my first question for you, uh, Colin, is what is the Jones Act so that we can set this up for our audience and give them some brief background on that? Yes. So the Jones Act is a term used to refer to Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. And it basically states that if you want to ship, uh, move goods by water from one point in the United States to another, you need to use a vessel that meets four conditions. That vessel has to be uh, registered and flagged in the United States. It has to be at least 75% owned by American citizens. It has to be crewed by American citizens. And the vessel has to be built here in the United States. And this goes back to 1920? So the Jones Act was passed in 1920, but we've had laws very similar to this going back basically to the founding of the country. Uh, One of the first acts of Congress, I think the third act, if I recall correctly, um, was a tariff that basically said you can use foreign ships to transport goods within the United States, but you have to pay extremely high tariffs to do so. Uh, That basically made it very unattractive to use uh, foreign ships. And then in 1817, I believe, um, foreign shipping was just banned entirely. It didn't matter if you paid a tariff or not, couldn't use them. Um, and this you know, brings up a pretty obvious question. Well, if we had laws similar to this all along, what was the point of the Jones Act? And the point of the Jones Act was um, it was uh, advanced by uh, Seattle-based shipping interests um, because even though we had laws similar to this all along, at the very beginning of the country, these laws were not considered a very big imposition because American shipping and shipbuilding was some of the best, most efficient, cost-effective in the world. So there was really no need 
to use foreign shipping uh, and, and, and using American shipping was not some big burden. But as time went on, that began to change. Uh, we went from the era of wooden ships, which the Americans were very good at, not a big surprise. You know, we had huge forests along uh, our, our coasts and all 13, you know, original states were along the coast. We had people that knew all about shipping and shipbuilding. Well, as time went on, we, we made that switch to ships made of iron um, and were steam powered. And the U.S. Uh, became very uncompetitive, uh, got to the point where instead of being some of the best, most efficient, uh, you know, American built ships were, you know, 25 to 50 percent more expensive than those built elsewhere. So people started looking for ways around uh, these laws. And one thing they hit on was, OK, so I can't use an American ship to go from one American port to another. But what if I send a, um, you know, foreign ship? Uh, from an American port to a foreign port, then take the cargo from that foreign port and go back to another American port. And that was permissible. Um, in fact, uh, there was a famous court case where someone tried to ship 250 kegs of nails from, uh, I believe it was New York to California, and they did it through Belgium. They took a foreign ship to Belgium, <laughs> another foreign ship from Belgium to California, and obviously they did the math and figured that was still more cost-effective than using an American ship. So Congress said, no, you can't do that anymore. And they changed it. But what you could still do is transport goods over land to a foreign port and then use a foreign ship to go to an American port. So this um, this was used a lot in the Alaska trade. Goods going to and from Alaska would go through Vancouver. They send the goods over land, you know, a train up to Vancouver, and then you can use a foreign ship. So, you know, Seattle-based shipping companies, they hated this. And uh, so 1920 comes along, or 1919 rather, um, the U.S. Uh, Congress is, is uh, holding hearings on U.S. maritime policy. Um, one of, this was sparked by, among other things, the end of World War One. U.S. built, U.S. government built uh, over a thousand ships. They didn't know what to do with them all after the war was over. So they need to figure out how to dispose of these ships. And then they, they just passed this bigger bill, the Merchant Marine Act in 1920. And then Section 27 tweaked the law so you can no longer um, use that that workaround, that loophole, by going over land to foreign ports. And the language adopted is almost exactly, it's like 85, 90% the same, is what was introduced by a representative of the Pacific Steamship Company at a Senate hearing in, I believe, January, February of 1920. Basically said, we, we got this problem with Canadian unfair Canadian competition, and we think you should change the law. And so if you look at Section 27, the Jones Act, it's almost exactly what the steamship company proposed. And by the way, the Jones Act, named after Senator Wesley Jones, he's from Washington State, from Seattle. So there you go. Sorry for sorry for the long rant, but that, that, no, that's no, that, 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 that was are. perfect. You got to watch those Canadians, man. Now, you know, yeah. they're the... <laughs> The, the, un yeah. the unfair Canadian competition that we have to deal with is just unbelievable. But this persists today. I'm sure you're aware that because Ron and I talked about this on one of our bonus episodes last year. There was a railroad that was <laughs> running in Canada that was like this 200 yard stretch. But to, in order to get around this and it lasted over 10 years. Right. Yes. So. So, yeah, for those <laughs> that are not familiar, didn't tune into your episode. Um, there was a, a seafood company and they were importing Alaskan seafood. Um, and there's this there's this little known exception to the Jones Act that says that if goods are transported over Canadian railway, you don't have to use American ships. If at some point during the during the journey, it goes over Canadian railway. 
So someone did the math and they started sending foreign ships from Alaska to the east coast of Canada. I think it was New Brunswick. And they built this, like you said, 200 foot long um, railway. They would load the seafood onto this railway. And I use that in air quotes. Go up and down. They check that box. Hey, we're not getting a railway. We, you know, we're all set. No Jones Act. And they would put it on trucks and they would go to the to the East Coast, uh, you know, um, to the Northeast United States. They were very close to the U.S. border. And what's interesting about this is this was uh, busted by Customs and Border Protection. They said, no, no, this is not a railroad. This is not compliant. This is not... This is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for the Jones Act, but it shows the links that people would go to to get around the law. Obviously, these people did the math, and like those people sending the, the, the kegs of nails, they said, this is this is crazy, but it still makes more financial sense than, than using Jones Act shipping. Yeah, there's actually a, a, a video of this, and I, we'll put it in the show notes, too, of, of this railroad working before they shut it down in April of 2023. But so this is I, – I, thanks for setting this up. This was perfect, uh, Colin. What is the it is the biggest case, in my view, of what we like to call ballistic podiatry in the United States. We shoot ourselves literally in the foot over this. And the 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 amount of economic damage has got to be near half a trillion dollars, would you say? What's the latest numbers on this? Yeah. So finding really good information on this is is really difficult. Um, There have been, you know, a few studies here and there. I think the most recent one was, uh, well, actually, the most recent one was in December that kind of looked at just, it was, it was narrowly focused. It looked at what's the impact on uh, the on, on, on uh, petroleum markets in the East Coast, because we have a situation right now where the Gulf Coast, which is where most of our refining capacity is, you know, they produce gasoline. And you would think very logically, well, that gasoline would get shipped up to, you know, the, the mid-Atlantic, to New England, but that that rarely happens. Um, in fact, they rely a lot on imports. And most of that stuff out of the Gulf Coast gets exported because once you factor in the cost of shipping things on Jones Act vessels, it just destroys the economics of it. Um, so there's a paper just looked at what would happen if, you know, these guys could actually get access to efficient international shipping instead of expensive Jones Act ships. And I think they they figure that something like uh, consumers would save in the order of, I want to say, $750 million, somewhere, you know, plus or minus, I don't know, $20 million, something like that. And that was used, that wasn't looking even at all energy products. I think it was just like finished motor gasoline, maybe, maybe diesel fuel oil, something like that. Um, they didn't look, for example, liquefied natural gas, and they used some conservative assumptions. But I think what's really tricky with this is that um, the Jones Act is the cost of the Jones Act. It's it's an opportunity cost. It is what does the United States look like? You know, it's the difference between what does the United States look like today versus what does the United States look like without the Jones Act in place? What are all the efficiencies that could be unlocked? And that's just something that's very difficult to study. Uh, the U.S. government back in the 90s put out uh, several reports of the U.S. International Trade Commission. They would study um, import restraints, all kinds of protections laws, and kind of assign a cost to each of them. And back in like the early 90s, they said, yeah, we think the Jones Act costs like nine, $9.5 billion, something like that. And and every time they release one of these reports, the Jones Act lobby would scream and say, "No, your assumptions are are are, are out of whack." And in fact, um, they uh, Congress back in the mid nineties um, mandated the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, to examine these USITC reports to see if they were on the up and up. And 
I think it's a pretty safe assumption they were up doing this under pressure of, of Jones Act supporters do this. And they, they released this report three or four times. Every year that amount went down. And then 2002, they said, yeah, we think it's like 600 and something million dollars. And they never issued another report after that because they just got tired of dealing with all the pressure. Um, I think that, that that number is from outer space. I don't think that has any credibility. I mean, there have been there have been reports, for example, the GAO did a study looking at just Alaska back in the 80s, and they calculated the cost, I think, of the U.S. build requirement to Alaska alone was something like $400 million. You know, this is 30 years ago. Um, so anyway, um, there is no good number out there. So un- un- unfortunately, you know, we, we have to do some speculation. The last study that looked at the Jones Act kind of the impact on the U.S. economy writ large um, found that in, uh, I think this was in 2019, the OECD uh, estimated the impact to be somewhere between like 16 to $64 billion, something in, in, in that neighborhood is a pretty wide range. But I, th- I think suffice to say it's many billions of dollars. It's just a question of how much. And there's some very specific things that you can point to. One, for example, I think you talked about on on one of your appearances is the the cost of liquid liquefied natural gas going to Puerto Rico as opposed to going to uh, was it Dominican Republic? They, they get right. That's right. Yes. So again, as I mentioned, the Jones Act is very much you know studying an opportunity cost and 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 what would happen. That um, if it's not currently happening, absent um, if the law was, no, was not in place. So uh, a colleague of mine and I, we looked at um, the Dominican Republic because this is right next to Puerto Rico, no Jones Act, and then we have Puerto Rico Jones Act. So what are the differences in, say, for example, how they purchase energy? And Puerto Rico buys no uh, liquefied natural gas from the U.S. mainland because it can't. It's physically impossible because the ships do not exist to transport it. So literally, you know, I think a month or two ago, the United States was officially declared the world's leading exporter of LNG, but we can't send it to other parts of the United States, including Puerto Rico, which uses LNG for like, I think, 35, 40 percent of their electric uh, power generation. And, you know, we export all over the world, but we can't send other parts of our own country because there are no ships to comply with this law to transport it. Meanwhile, right next door, Dominican Republic, no Jones Act. And it was, you know, it was well over a majority of their LNG came from the U.S., which suggests that's where the best deals are to be had. Meanwhile, Puerto Rico, um, you know, in the last couple of years, I think last year, the majority of their LNG came from Nigeria. Uh, and I think the year before that, they bought a bunch from Oman, you know, halfway around the world. Whereas, right, I mean, there's an LNG export facility uh, outside of Savannah, Georgia. Um, you know, this is crazy. Absolutely insane. Well, Colin, this is great. Unfortunately, we're up against our first break. I want to remind our listeners that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Our first break is sponsored by Bookskeeping Franchise. Check them out at bookskeepingfranchise.com. Also, we want to remind you to rate this podcast by going to ratethispodcast.com slash TSOE. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. 
Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Ron, we talk a lot about business opportunities. Well, now a great one has become our sponsor. Bookskeepingfranchise.com. Bookskeeping with an X. That's right, Ed. If you are interested in becoming part of the $4.2 billion bookkeeping industry for a franchise fee of just under $20,000, visit www.bookskeepingfranchise.com. Bookskeeping comes with full training, plus marketing and technical support, and even staffing. Visit the website or call 855-935-2669. Franchise opportunity not available in all states. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking with Colin Grabo from Cato. And Colin, I was watching your um, debate with two proponents of the Jones Act and you and another guy were the opponents and it was on Maritime TV. And I think we'll, we'll get the link into our show notes so people can watch it. Um, it was like watching physicists debate flat earthers. I have to say, I mean, you guys demolished every one of their arguments, but one of the most amusing things was when one of the guys proponents said every one of our transportation sectors has a Jones Act equivalent, air, rail, truck. We we protect our transportation industries. And I was like, wait a minute. The, we don't force our domestic airlines to buy, you know, Boeings. <laughs> they can they can buy Airbus. Uh, but he, he, here's my question. Um, and we had Dan Mitchell on talking about tax policy and uh, specifically about do corporations pay taxes? And I asked Dan, I said, are you telling me people like Elizabeth Warren and other Congress critters don't understand this concept? And he said, no, Ron, they do understand it. They just don't care about it. They don't. Is it the same with the Jones Act? With And I'm talking about Congress critters. Why can't we get this stupid law repealed? Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that's a question that, you know, comes up a lot. Uh, if you look at just on its merits, you would think this thing would have been gone a long time ago or at least substantially changed. So so what gives here? Um, and I think we have to recognize that the this is a classic case of dispersed costs and concentrated benefits. Your average American has no idea the Jones Act exists. 
um, is not on their radar. The people that go into a voting booth and base their decisions on where a candidate stands in the Jones Act is going to be someone who supports the law because they think that this law is the, is is their livelihood. It's the bread and butter, um, and and they vote accordingly. Um, and this gets reflected on a larger level within lobbying. I could name you know, off the top of my head probably like a dozen organizations that either their top priority or top three priority is maintaining the Jones Act. Uh, whereas there is not a single um, you know lobbying group uh, industry association here in DC that has repealed the Jones Act as a top three uh, or top you know number one issue uh, certainly and our, and the dynamics we see reflect that. Furthermore, you know if you're a member of Congress, you just do do the math. Um, we'd like to think that most members of Congress that that they're out there to do what's best for the country, but I think you know there's a lot of self interest that goes on. What's going to get me reelected? And if you take on the Jones Act, you're going to make, you know, uh, those dozen organizations I can name or any, any number of organizations, you're going to make them very angry. Um, their members are going to be angry. You're going to get an earful from them. They'll donate to your opponents. They'll make life difficult for you. And the other side of the coin, and for what? Um, you know, you, the average person, your average constituent is not going to say, hey, Congressman, good job. Thanks for taking on the Jones Act, because, again, they're not even aware of it. Um and and on the flip side, if you support the Jones Act, then you get the endorsements, then you get the contributions, you make life easier for yourself. And all they ask is keep things the same. We're not asking you to introduce any legislation. We're asking you to proactively do anything. We're just saying if this ever comes up for a vote, just vote the right way. And so supporting the Jones Act is absolutely the path of least resistance. And I think a great example of this is some people, to the extent they, they're aware of the Jones Act, or they think about it. Um, they may think that there's a dynamic where the representatives of Puerto Rico, Hawaii, Alaska, they show up in Congress and say, you know, guys, this is killing us. We really need to do something here. And the other 48 states say, whatever, that's your problem. We don't care. Um, let's move along. And in fact, some of the strongest support you find in Congress is in those states. Uh, the Alaska delegation, all three members support the Jones Act. And this is despite the fact that in 1984, there was a referendum passed in Alaska that passed 60 to 40 that among its provisions mandated that the governor of Alaska lobby Congress for repeal of the Jones Act. It is written into Alaska state law that the governor, among his or her duties, lobby Congress for Jones Act repeal. And yet all three members support the law. I can't tell you exactly why they feel the way they feel, but I do know that if you go to Senator Dan Sullivan's uh, endorsements page, we list all the different organizations that have endorsed them. I think there are like 26, something like that. You no, know, four of them, I believe, are maritime groups. Um, you look in Hawaii. Uh, there have been polls done twice in the last five years showing that among people aware of the Jones Act in Hawaii, which is like 35, 40%, 90% of them favor either repealing the law or making some significant reforms. And yet, all members except for one, Representative Ed Case, is opposed um, uh, or supports the law. And, and Case, he's given interviews where he said, look, this is tough for me. You make some very powerful enemies. Uh, the lone non-voting representative from Puerto Rico, uh, Jennifer Gonzalez, she supports the judge. She was given an award a year or two ago by uh, maritime lobbying organizations for her support. So I apologize for the long answer, but that, oh. that, that in a nutshell is kind of why we are where we are. Yeah, yeah, no, it's so frustrating. Wow. Um, all right, I want to change gears on you, Colin, and move to your yeah. uh, recent paper from the October 24th, um, 2023. You guys are doing this globalization project at Cato. It's a 
12 part series. And I read some of the contributions like Scott Lincecum and Deirdre McClowski, who we've both had on the show. And your paper is excellent. It's the reality of American deindustrialization. And you point out that the, man, the manufacturing sector in the U.S. is $2.25 trillion in 2023. That's, that's, about, that's bigger than Italy's economy, just to put it in perspective. And we rank second in 2021 with about 16% of global manufacturing, and yet we're 4% of the world's population. This doesn't sound like the Rust Bowl to me. No, I mean, yeah. So it, you know, it's an election year. Um, if 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 past is prologue, I, I expect we'll hear um, a lot of talk about how we need to reindustrialize and, re- and reshore American manufacturing. How this has all been shipped off to China, Mexico, and everywhere else. We don't make things anymore. Um, there was actually a book here. Your, your viewers can't see it, but you, you guys can. That came out uh, called "Making It in America" about the almost impossible quest to manufacture in the U.S. USA and how it got that way. This, I think, the book, there's a lot of nonsense in here, but I think this is representative of a lot of the sentiment of one hears. And yet, if you actually look at the statistics, dig into it, I say we're a manufacturing superpower. I don't know how to put it any other way. Um, like you said, 2.5 trillion GDP. I think we, you know, our exports are over a trillion, well over a trillion dollars in manufactured goods. And this is not just, you know, beverages um, or, you know, paper products or something like this. I mean, something like, I want to say 150, $200 billion of that is classified as high tech. Um, we are one of the world's biggest automakers. You know, we're top three, I believe. Uh, we're top three or four steel producer. Uh, we're the world's biggest uh, exporter of aerospace. Um, so I, I suspect what's going on here is that, you know, when you go to the store, um, Walmart, whatever, most stuff you see for sale, you know, Ikea, it's not made in the U.S. And so one logically concludes, well, we don't make things. Well, it's because we don't make the kind of consumer products you find on a shelf. We're too busy making chemicals and, you know, electric machinery and airplane parts and things like that. Um, so we've just moved up the value chain and, and the U.S. very much remains a manufacturing superpower. And it hasn't disappeared. Like you said, it's been transformed mostly with productivity. I mean, you point out, this is astonishing. The value per worker in 2019 in China was about 19K per manufacturing worker. In South Korea, it's 98,000. And in the US of A, it's $141,000 per worker. This is, I mean, in any other sector, we'd be thrilled with productivity growth like this. Yeah, I think this ties into another thing. You know, I mentioned the lack of you know American-made products on the store shelf, but other thing is, how many people know folks that you know work at the local factory? This used to be a big source of employment once upon a time, and now we're down to like thirteen million, something like that, which is a percentage of the U.S. You know, working population is not that big. So, um, but this is a tribute to our productivity. Um, I think I mentioned in the paper that the, you know, the steel industry. Um, I want to say they have what, like a, a fourth, a fifth of the number of workers they used to, and yet, you know, they actually produce more than they did, you know, back in the eighties. Um, we just learned how to do more with less. Um, you know, I, uh, and I don't think that's a necessarily a bad thing. I used to work in manufacturing. Uh, I had a summer job working at a factory that made paint. Uh, that factory is now closed. Um, kind of the running joke we had with some of my coworkers at the time was, you know, if, if the factory closed, um, 
you know, it'd be bad in the short term, but we probably don't live longer because of all the fumes and, you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, I worked on assembly line and now I work in the service sector. And I will tell you, you know, this is this anecdote. This is just me. This doesn't represent all, all people, but working in the service sector is a whole lot better. Uh, than, than, than working in a factory. That doesn't, you know, I don't mean to talk down to factory jobs and there's a place for that, but we also just shouldn't um, uh, think, I, I think we uh, hold them sometimes in too high of esteem and we associate factory work with, um, we, we think these are these are great, these are the kind of jobs you want when in fact, um, another thing I point out in the paper is your average factory job pays less than uh, a comparable job, you know, elsewhere in the economy. Once upon a time, not so long ago, that that, that was not the case. But uh, that is now the case that these are actually below average jobs in yeah, terms you, of pay. You actually cite one paper that puts manufacturing wages in the bottom half of America workforce. So we'll call and I have more questions on this paper. So I'll, I'll do that in the last segment. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Do check out our Patreon channel where you can subscribe and get bonus content. Become a patron at patreon.com slash TSOE. And of course, that channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. Find a mind at 90 Minds. You can check their work out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on the solo of Enterprise talking to Colin Grabo. And one of his books that's available out on Amazon is The Case Against the Jones Act. Check that out if you want to know more about this topic. But uh, Colin wanted to just pick up a little bit on what Ron was saying. You know, <laughs> Dave Chappelle has a great line. He says something about like, I want to I want to come live in the country that that wears Nikes, not 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 make them. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's excellent. I actually rewatched that literally last week. Um, yeah. 
So, but why we're so concerned with the manufacturing jobs, you know what we're not concerned with? Ag jobs. And the same thing happened with agricultural jobs over the course of years. Is this just another transition? Maybe we just need to catch up to what's the reality of what's happening in this situation? Yeah, I wonder, you know, I, I think we we hold, you know, I think your stereotypical agriculture worker, people just, you know, picture people in a field, you know, picking things and that is backbreaking hard labor. And I think there's a romanticization around manufacturing, maybe that there isn't with agriculture and 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 people harken back to, you know, 1950s, this notion that you go work in the factory and got your lunch bucket and uh, you could provide for a family and, um you know, there's all. I think it, it ties into romanticized notions about the past and and the standard of living that we enjoyed in the past. And people can't grapple with the reality: is jobs pay better today, um, they're more comfortable to work at, and we have a higher standard of living than we did back then. And it, and it continues to happen. I mean, I, I was thinking about this today as I was uh, actually getting getting ready for the show. You know, there's two songs in the 1980s. I'm a child of Billy Joel had a song called Allentown. And the and Bruce Springsteen had a had a song called My Hometown, both of which are lamenting the loss of these these advertising jobs, which they both all agreed sucked. Like, <laughs> the, you know, it's like there, there weren't all that. And I think we're seeing some of the same thing happen now with regard to even knowledge work with with AI and bots. Right. I, I've actually said this on stage. If your job in, in the service sector can be taken by a, an AI bot, your job's boring. And it yes. sucks. It's repetitive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so this is, we're just seeing this one, once more, uh, another cycle through this. It, co- comment on that if you would. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the newer jobs that come along tend to be better than the jobs that, that we lose. Um, I, I think that's certainly what history has shown us. I don't know why it would be any different uh, this time around. Um, there are uh, so many, uh, you know, cool new, you know, <laughs> the, the whole job of being an influencer. This did not exist. <laughs> uh, maybe this is, is not a point in favor of where we're going. Um, the fact that we have these people, but yeah, you know, people that make their, 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 their livings from, you know, uh, you know, Instagram or whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. To They're me. famous for being uh, famous. It's, yes, it's, yes, it's a beautiful a whole thing. Culture around it. I mean, this, this is a line of work, um, <laughs> apparently, you know, in 2024. Well, I, I think that's a wonderful thing that we have that. I, I really, really do. Yeah, I, this is <laughs> I'm not, not against it. I want to roll, you know, uh, roll, roll that back. But yeah, it is a comment on, on where we are. And these are the possibilities that, that one has uh, today. Just well, a cu- couple more things taking you back to the Jones Act. Apologize for flip flopping yeah, on you here. But no <laughs> what the, there are so many absurd things that happen to this. Is it true that we actually fly cattle to Hawaii? Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> So this is this is a thing that so that, yeah you know we talk about you know silly things uh, we can't send LNG to other parts of the United States we had the whole thing with the fake Canadian railway and another thing we have are um, cattle being flown on airplanes so why does this happen so Hawaii something I did not know before I started digging into the Jones Act is that uh, the Big Island of Hawaii is home to one of the top twenty five biggest cattle herds in the country. Um, but they don't have any processing facilities, slaughterhouses in uh, in Hawaii, at least for the scale necessary to, to export um, uh, all the cattle that they have there. So what they do is they take the cattle and they send them to the West Coast uh, to put them on feedlots and for processing. And there's two ways that they can do that. Now, the traditional way, if you want to move cattle by um, by sea – 
is you have something called a livestock carrier. As the name implies, this is a vessel dedicated just to transporting livestock. That's what it's built for. You won't be surprised to learn there are none. There are none. You know, we don't have any LNG carriers. We don't have any livestock carriers in the Jones Act fleet. So uh, we got to find alternatives. Uh, one way is to use something called a cowtainer. These are modified shipping containers. Uh, so you take the cattle, load them on the cowtainer, then put on a regular container ship and move it back to the West Coast. This is inefficient as evidenced by the fact that no one else in the world uses these things. This is strictly an American Jones Act phenomena. Or you put them on airplanes and fly them from Hawaii to the West Coast. And what I've read is that cost-wise, these are actually pretty similar. One reason you can't put all the the, um, the cattle on airplanes is just not the volume of airplanes to do that. Uh, so, you know, this is another one of the absurd outcomes. And, and the... Um, There's the National Cattlemen's Association, I believe, and I think it, they're one of their more recent meetings. They vote a resolution to oppose the Jones Act, and this was advanced by the Hawaii guys, saying, "You know, this is a real problem for us. We can't efficiently move, you know, our, our cattle from from Hawaii uh, to to the mainland." So. And the the other thing I want to ask about: there were even during COVID, very few waivers put in place for the Jones Act, if if any. Were, did they did they waive some of it at least temporarily? No. So, um, it, you know, back in back in 2017, um, President Trump waived the Jones Act after Hurricane Maria for 10 days to allow supplies to go on foreign vessels uh, to Puerto Rico. Um, and then it, back in the spring of 2019, some of Trump's advisors uh, presented him. Uh, with with a, an executive order and said, look, um, you have the ability, the authority to waive the Jones Act for 10 years for liquefied natural gas. So Americans in New England and Puerto Rico get access to American natural gas. And Bloomberg had a story about this, said Trump was leaning in favor of it. And then the next week, six senators plus Steve Scalise went down to the White House. It was both senators from, uh, I believe, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alaska, and said, no, President, do not touch the Jones Act. Don't do this. Trump backed off. Never happened. But this freaked out Congress. And the next year, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act paired back the president's authority to the executive branch's authority to grant uh, Jones Act waivers. Basically said, you can only do it for 10 days um, with possible extensions to 45 days. It has to be in direct support of a military operation. Um, some really severe constraints around this. So in the last, you know, since since Hurricane Maria, the only uh, waivers have been issued is there was one um, or two waivers issued for individual ships, not, you know, a broad waiver, but for individual ships during the Colonial Pipeline outage so they could transport fuel from uh, the Gulf Coast up to New Jersey, I believe. And then after a hurricane hit uh, Puerto Rico like a year and a half ago or so, you guys may recall there was a situation where, uh, you know, a hurricane hits Puerto Rico, people lose power. There's a need for power generators. Generators need diesel. So someone in Puerto Rico said, you know, we need we could use some more diesel fuel. And there happened to be a foreign ship going from Texas to the Netherlands with like 300,000 barrels of diesel fuel. And it's it, it stopped off Puerto Rico, but it could not unload because of the Jones Act. And uh, days went by, and finally Biden kind of came to pressure and issued a waiver uh, of the Jones Act. And uh, after that, 
Uh, only a few months later, I believe, Congress again further restricted Jones Act waivers uh, to say that now you can only issue waivers for ships that are empty at the time the waiver is issued. So if a ship goes by with a thing you need, but it's not Jones Act compliant, you can't use it. We only want ships that are empty that have to go to American port, then load up and then go to wherever they're needed. So again, Congress is actually, not only have we not seen you know waivers issued um, in large scale or the Jones Act pared back during the pandemic, Congress actually went in the other direction. And both these, let me point out, these were not standalone bills. These were buried in like, you know, the National Defense Authorization Act is like 4,000 pages, it's thousands of pages um, buried in there. And so things have actually gone in the opposite direction. It, it really is just so frustrating. I don't know how you keep this, <laughs> keep your sanity with all this. We're talking about this at the break. And, and, but there's got to be somebody who's making a ton of money on this. And, it's, and as you said earlier, it's concentrated uh, benefits, diffuse costs. Somebody's got to be making them a lot of money. There's got to be. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there wouldn't be this much resistance to it. Yeah. Um, so obviously the vessel operators, the people that, you know, serve, uh, that transport, you know, energy to parts of the United States, the giant pipelines, you know, overseas ship only group, for example. And then also the carriers that serve Hawaii, Alaska, uh, Puerto Rico, Guam, um, which by the way, <laughs> they serve them like Jones at container ships. They only go to these places because they're thoroughly uncompetitive. Uh, where there are alternative forms of transportation, they can only serve those markets where there is no other form of transportation. Um, so, you know, they they obviously find it in their interest to, they, they profit off this. You know, Matson and OSG are both publicly listed companies. But what's really wild about this is that, you know, U.S. built ships are four to five times more expensive than ones built overseas. Like the last contract signed for a Jones X ship, there were three ships from the Philly shipyard $333 million a piece, a billion dollars for three ships. You could buy those same three ships, uh, you know, in, in an Asian shipyard for, you know, a fifth of, of the price. And so you, you logically hear that and think, oh my God, they must be making uh, money hand over fist there at Philly. Well, Philly has been losing money for years. And there were, there were rumors recently that it was on the, on the, um, it was for sale. Uh, and the guy, like, the asking price was like $20 million, something like that. I mean, po- in the scheme of things, pocket change. So it's a tribute not to how much money they're making, just how inefficient they are. So, um, it, it gets even, you know, I can almost accept it more if, yeah, they were just lying in people's pockets, but some of these, you know, shipyards that have this monopoly, they can't even manage to make money. There's another Jones Act shipyard sold a year year or two ago for in Mississippi for $15 million. Again, we consider you know the capital equipment and the size and everything. It, it's a, just a crazy amount of money for, for a shipbuilding operation. Well, maybe that's going to be the solution. It's ultimately just going to have the, the shipyards not be in business anymore and they, we can't even make anymore. Well, Colin, this has been great. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your knowledge of this. Ron's going to take you the rest of the way home on the fourth segment, but we want to remind our listeners they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Again, that website, The Soul of Enterprise, Patreon channel, patreon.com slash TSOE, where not only can you hear the show commercial free, but our bonus episodes as well. But right now, a word from our sponsors and my employer, Sage. A little birdie told me Voice America is on X. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. 
These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Colin Grabo from the Cato Institute, and I'm talking to him about his paper, The Reality of American Deindustrialization. And in the in the paper, Colin, you have a great philosophical section. What is manufacturing? And you talk about it runs a wide gamut of activities from, you know, fruit and vegetable preserves, stationery, even Coca-Cola would be considered a manufacturing. But then you bring up the examples of Nike and NVIDIA. Uh, you know, they do the design and marketing, but they don't do the manufacturing. So the government doesn't count them as a manufacturer. And I guess my first question is, is that true with Apple too? With like the iPhone? Is Are they not a manufacturer under the government's category? Yeah, I don't know how the government classifies them, but I remember looking into this and I think Apple does do some manufacturing, but it's very small. Um um, but I, I do think they, they, broadly speaking, fit within that mold of factoryless producers where they overwhelmingly rely on third parties to actually make the things that they produce. Um, you know, they do the assembly in China and then a lot of the inputs and the components will come from other places, South Korea, Japan, and, you know, even some American companies. I think I think the, the glass, Gorilla Glass, I think that's an American uh, uh, invention that's produced here. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that it may not be 100% factory list, but it's, it's very small, uh, whatever uh, production they do have. And yeah, I think it, it, it does reflect that broader phenomenon of, of companies that they're not so interested in producing stuff. They're, they're they're interested in, you know, they outsource that and they focus on the the design, the innovation, making products better. And that's, you know, the high value ad stuff. That's where the really well-paid jobs uh, come from. And then they find someone else say, you know, you guys actually handle the physically assembly uh, of this and, you know, I don't mention the paper, I don't think, but one interesting aspect of this is how this affects our trade statistics. So, for example, um, you know, we have this big trade deficit with China, and there's been much made of that. Um, but a lot of this is kind of, 
how you do accounting. Uh, for example, there was a paper that came out and said that each iPhone that comes into the United States has like, I want to say it counts as like a $345 debit against the U.S. in favor of, of China mm-hmm. for the trade deficit. But so much of the, what's in that phone uh, comes from elsewhere that, in fact, like only $103 of that is actually due uh, to China. And then also, for example, take Tesla. They, um, in a sense, they export to China using factories in China. You know, it's an American company. So the returns on assets are generated to an American company. So you can think of these as exports. And if you, and I remember there's one paper uh, in the past couple of years that took these different kind of considerations. And once you adjusted for them, like the trade deficit with China goes down over 30%. Because right. um, it's just how you measure things. And increasingly, our trade statistics don't keep up with the reality of how things are, are made uh, in the 21st century. Yeah, I've even read that China only adds like seven or 10 bucks to each iPhone, but then it comes back into the States, hold it, you know, Apple stores, and it's counted as the full retail price. Yeah, I think it, I think the, the initial, like the iPhone 3G and some of those first ones, I think you're right. It was like like less than 10 bucks. I think they've moved up, moved um, up. you know, as, as in subsequent generations, but still uh, very much a minority of the sales price, you know, goes to to China. And on this topic, Colin, this has always bothered me. You know, we can talk about macro, the manufacturing sector and all the statistics, but at the micro level, Toyota might make 10 million cars every year, but try selling one of them without services, financing, warranty, dealer repair. I mean, the list goes inventory factoring for the dealership. The list goes on and on of services. It's like, why are we trying to make a distinction between these two things? Isn't it kind of archaic? in today's world to try and separate manufacturing from services? Yeah, I think you bring up at least two good uh, points here. One is, you know, I mentioned the design angle um, for production, how those are good jobs. But yes, all these things need service. Um, You know, uh, tractors, uh, you know, they need service. Uh, The the people that install um, uh, solar cells, uh, you know, all kinds of, you name it, uh, that you know these things need to be serviced, and those also tend to be you know those those are often very well paid uh, jobs as well. And and then it comes out to what is manufacturing. You know, my my colleague Scott Lincecum he had a newsletter last week that did discuss this, and he mentioned I think the example of I want to say it was um, um, uh, the lumber industry. And you know, mm. if you chop down a tree, that's not manufacturing. If you take the tree. And then, uh, you know, you turn to a bedpost or whatever, that is manufacturing. But then if you trans, you know, the transportation of the tree to the mill and the transportation of the finished product uh, from mill to the consumer, none of that is manufacturing. So you, you kind of get in this debate over what exactly is it? And you, I think you end, you end up at some interesting places. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it seems like a distinction without a difference more and more as time goes on. Um, you know, we had Donald Bedreau on epi- uh, episode 187 for Greg. Uh, and we, I asked him if we should do away with trade deficit statistics. And he said, oh, absolutely. What, what do you say to that? Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Um, it's this weird, it's this accounting metric that a lot of people, for some reason, put a lot of importance on. And I, I mean, it's it's understandable, right? I mean, deficit just has a negative connotation to it. I certainly don't like hearing about our budget deficit. That is a genuine yeah. source of concern. <laughs> um, and, and trade deficit, you know, means that, <laughs> it is the other thing, it means you get more stuff than what you send out. And 
don't know. A lot of people might think of that as winning, you know, you're because that is kind of the goal, right? Is to get stuff. stuff. Um, yeah. uh, and, and so I do think that if we just stop, and then again, you know, I brought the, these these angles uh, about you know how the stuff is even calculated. Um, so it would be useful if we just didn't pay attention to, or if we didn't have this stuff because it leads us to some bad places. But then also. Let's we've we've been running a trade deficit for decades. So you would think at this point, if there was something negative with these, we'd be paying the piper by now, right? After decades is, and yet if you look at correlations, and I don't pull off talking correlations, but if you think that the deficit is a problem, then you know you look at GDP per capita, you look at household income, um, you look at any number of positive, you know, manufacturing exports. All this stuff is trended upwards, has correlated. With our trade deficit. Now, I'm not saying our trade deficit has driven all that stuff, but it's really hard to make the case that this is a problem to worry about when it also correlates with so many good outcomes. Um, we are at a place right now where workers, it, it's hard for manufacturers or any business to find enough workers out there. I think we actually have a pretty good economy. And another fun thing to note is that our trade deficit tends to shrink during times of economic distress. You know, t- traditionally, like a recession or got you know a mild depression, that's the best remedy for a, a trade deficit to the, to the extent you're interested in such things. Yeah, and it, the other point about this whole topic that's so frustrating when you hear about manufacturing jobs is, first off, governments don't trade; people do. So, what business it is is it anybody else if I buy a foreign car? But the other thing is, like Stephen Landsberg, I think says, I give pieces of paper to a foreign country and I get a Lexus. He said, this is kind of like Santa Claus. Well, that, that's another thing. You know, the, this money that we, so many people, President or former President Trump certainly included, have this notion that it's a scorecard, right? And if you send money overseas, you're losing. What they don't understand is, you know, um, imports drive exports. You know, people overseas cannot buy our products if they don't have our money. And, and in fact, you know, if this, and we know that they use that money to either buy American products or assets, um, because if they didn't, that would be the best deal ever. We could just print money, give them this piece of paper. They never use it to claim any of our stuff. And all we do is get stuff in exchange for paper. So, you know, if you're someone that you think we should export more, then we need to import more too. I think Bastiat said if exports are great and imports are bad, then we should sink all the ships at sea. It's that or we should we should thank the Houthis out there in Yemen, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. they're trying to sink ships and we should say, Yeah, guys, you know but we don't have ships at sea because of the Jones Act. So it's awesome. <laughs> Well, Colin, you end the paper, and we've only got about a half minute left, but you end the paper with some recommendations. No industrial policy, no protectionist measures, expand immigration reform the tax code. Um, it seems like we've got along pretty well in manufacturing without the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. We've attracted yeah. foreign direct investment. That's right. That's right. We, we've done pretty well. Um, so, um, you know, I, as part of me, cynical part of me thinks that people need to create a perception around a crisis around manufacturing because that in turn justifies these big, uh, you know, programs they want to do so they can uh, have an excuse to go out and spend absurd amounts of money in the name of, you know, saving the the U S economy. Yeah. Well, Colin, thank you so much. What an honor to be able to talk to you. Really appreciate you coming on and we will link to your uh, paper, the reality of American deindustrialization, which I highly recommend people read. It's an excellent paper, great piece of work. Ed, what do we have coming up next week? 
Well, I'll tell you in a second, Ron, but I just want to report that I've checked has Congress repealed the Jones Act.com and it still is no. So, even, after Collins <laughs> even after this, it's still yeah. no. But just for so you're aware, there is the website. How is Congress repealed the Jones Act? You can always check it. Check it every day to see what's happening. But next, we have uh, Scott Reeb on subscription-based legal services next week, Ron. Excellent. Looking forward to it. See you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage building experiences that connect, remove friction and deliver insights. Join us next week on Friday at 3 PM Eastern. That's noon Pacific. In the meantime, please visit us on the web at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. <laughs> <laughs>